my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your curse-free host, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes spooky curses, dead love, and cuddly killers. Come over to my house tonight and check out this monster that always pops up. We can talk about horror movies while we wait for it to make an appearance. Number 1 in Pettigore, 2019, directed by Joko Anwar. After a man tries to kill her, Maya and her friend Dini learn that she is the heir to a big estate in a secluded village. They travel to the estate. There are no kids in the village since there is a curse that causes them to be born without skin. A sketchy elder named Sopdity and his mom run the village. The villagers think the curse will be lifted if Maya is killed and skinned. Dinny says she's Maya, so the villagers kill her. Maya is visited by some ghost kids that explain that she was born without skin, so her father killed them to complete a ritual to make her healthy. Her real father is actually Sopdity, and his mom started the curse. The ghosts say the curse will be lifted once they are buried with their skin, which was turned into puppets. Sopdity also committed a massacre and killed Maya's non-biological dad. Maya buries the bones of the dead kids with their skin and the curse is lifted. Sopdity finds out his mom was behind everything so he kills himself to spite her. She kills herself too. A year later a woman's baby is eaten by the spirit of Sopdity's mom since now there's a new worse curse on the village. Maya's non-biological dad, Sopdity, his mom, and the villagers are the killers. That summary is confusing and doesn't even cover all the events of In Pettigore. Basically, a girl named Maya goes back to her hometown and learns the truth about a bunch of stuff while a curse is going on. There's a part where one of the ghost kids pops up in the passenger seat of a man's car, but I don't think it's revealed if he dies after crashing the car as you do after being spooked by a ghost kid. The villagers not only killed Dini, they also killed the man that took Maya and Dini to the village. A very interesting thing in, in Pettigore is what you could call spite suicide. Sobtidi kills himself to get back at his mom. He says that he'll come back and haunt her forever. She then plays the reverse suicide card and also kills herself. Another character threatens to kill herself and haunt people that want to cause her harm. I have no idea how to Google if this is an Indonesian thing. I gave Googling this phenomena the old college try and came up empty. If you happen to know about Indonesian culture and know whether or not committing suicide specifically to come back and haunt someone is actually a thing, let me know. I doubt it is and assume it's just something that the writers came up with, but could see it being similar to seppuku in Japan. 
Turns out the last recorded instance of seppuku in Japan happened in 1970. Why am I even bringing this up? I think killing yourself because you're so mad at someone else that you want to haunt them is incredibly metal. For a movie about skinless babies where a lady needs to be skinned to break a curse, there isn't a ton of gore. One person who was born skinless and grew up and baby Maya are shown, but the images are forgettable. None of the characters that are shown skinless are easy to recall like the girl in the movie Martyrs. Could a person survive without skin for an extended period of time? Sopta deframing Maya's non-bio dad for a big massacre is a strange plot point. There didn't seem to be any reason for it to happen and it makes the character unforgivable. It is a little cheap that Impetigora is a movie shrouded in mystery until the Ghost Kid Exposition Squad decides to spill the beans. Maya doesn't find out information in interesting ways, it's just shown to her through a mind meld. Get out of my head, dead kids. The concept of a worse curse happening once a curse is lifted is an interesting one. A movie that has a group of goofballs solving curse after curse where things just keep getting worse sounds like decent bones for a horror comedy. Visually, Impetigore has a bunch of interesting locations. The big abandoned mansion is neat. Did I say a bunch? I just meant the mansion. The acting is solid overall. No one stuck out as being bad. Impetigore is a serviceable horror movie. It probably won't leave a big impact on you, but it's better than a lot of the garbage out there. Number 2, After Midnight 2019, directed by Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. A guy named Hank has a living girlfriend named Abby who wants him to propose. One day Abby disappears. While Abby's gone, a monster starts showing up at Hank's house. The monster eats Abby's cat. Everyone thinks Hank is making up the monster. Abby eventually comes back and Hank proposes. He's then attacked by the monster. Hank is able to kill the monster in self-defense. The monster is the killer. Pet warning, the monster eats the cat. It's kinda sad. After Midnight is more of a relationship drama than a horror movie. That's fine though. I've never been one to say something isn't a horror movie. After Midnight is one, but its first and foremost genre is definitely drama. My GF is Gonzo, what do? Oh boy, look a monster. After Midnight is well acted. Jeremy Gardner is great as Hank. Bria Grant is good as Abby. There's a long single shot back and forth between the both of them that's amazing. There's a little bit of silly acting from Henry Zabrowski, who plays a friend of Hank's named Wade. His drunk acting didn't work at all. Drunk acting is a weird skill that a lot of actors don't have. A good example of drunk acting is John Dunsworth's portrayal of Jim Leahy in Trailer Park Boys. That man could drunk act. R.I.P. Mr. Dunsworth. Turns out there's a Blink-182 song called After Midnight. I'm a big fan of their earlier stuff. I did not like the song After Midnight. Back to the movie. The design of the monster is unique and interesting. The easiest way to describe it is porcupine lion alien. It's a bit CGI-y in parts, but it looks pretty good overall. Considering the monster shows up around the same time every night, it is surprising that Hank is unable to photograph it in any way. 
Some people are really bad at taking pictures. There is definitely a show or movie about someone who tries to take pictures and consistently has shots where their thumb is covering the lens. I can't for the life of me remember what that was in. It seems like a common trope. It would have been funnier if Hank's finger ruined all of the pictures. Instead of that happening, he's just too dang slow to take a pic of the monster. Someone didn't grow up playing Pokemon Snap. That game helped give a whole generation of photographers snap reflexes. Does it matter that Hank is unable to photograph the beast? Not at all. I'm not here to harp on plot. Well, I wasn't until now. After Midnight is almost amazing. It's a story about two people making sacrifices for love. It ends with Hank being exactly who Abby wanted him to be. Then he kills a monster. That's the oopsie daisy right there. After Hank transforms into Maximum Boyfriend Hank, er, Maximum Fiancé Hank, instead of being interrupted during a karaoke rendition of Lisa Loeb's Stay, in parentheses I miss you, even though I looked that up, I guarantee I'll get both the artist and song wrong at trivia if it pops up in the future. Don't you hate when you're at trivia and you know a song, but you have no idea who it's by or what it's called? Focus, Josh. Okay, okay, focusing. Instead of Hank being interrupted during that and defeating the monster, he should have been interrupted and killed. That would have been a much more powerful ending, seeing as how everyone kept saying he was making up the monster, and Abby's craptacular cop brother had just called Hank out about it. I wish the monster would have eaten that clown. If the movie didn't want to end on an absolute downer, it could have also ended when Hank was tackled by the beast. Sure, people would have assumed he died, but optimistic folks could have decided he lived. If you're looking for a compelling movie that's mostly about a struggling couple that also happens to have a spooky monster in it, consider checking out After Midnight. Oh, I forgot to call out the cop for choosing the House of the Rising Sun for his karaoke song. That's a terrible song to sing at karaoke night. Number 3, Kindred, 2020, directed by Joe Mark Antonio. A pregnant woman named Charlotte's husband, Ben, dies after being kicked by a horse. Charlotte ends up living with Ben's mom, Margaret, and his half-brother, Thomas, at their large estate. Charlotte is losing time. She doesn't want to stay at the estate, but she finds out the cottage she lived at with Ben has been sold. Charlotte continuously tries to escape. Thomas admits to killing his drunk father. Charlotte finds out Thomas has been drugging her. She escapes and ends up at the hospital. She gives birth to her baby, but the baby is given to Margaret and Thomas, who pretends to be the father, since Charlotte is deemed unwell by a doctor friend of theirs. A horse and Thomas are the killers. Kindred is a movie that makes you wonder whether or not Charlotte is actually crazy. Thing is, at a certain point, you just stop caring. Kindred is your typical A Series of Unfortunate Events movies. Charlotte's husband dies. Charlotte is practically imprisoned by her mother-in-law. Charlotte attempts to escape. Charlotte is captured. Charlotte escapes. Charlotte crashes. Charlotte makes it to the hospital. Charlotte has the baby. The baby is taken away. Charlotte is institutionalized. I'm not a big fan of Unfortunate Events movies. There are some that are amazing, like Misery, which I always bring up when talking about them, but most unfortunate movies are frustrating to watch and barely have any entertainment in them. Kindred is frustrating. A lot of this has to do with the plot. 
A big red flag that something is wrong is loss of time. I feel like this is common knowledge. If you are losing time, and I'm not talking about being blackout drunk, you need to go see a doctor right away. Charlotte makes it to a doctor after multiple instances of losing time and doesn't even bring it up. I'm not sure how her cottage was sold. I guess she wasn't on the deed or something. Ben's mom shouldn't be able to sell the cottage. I guess technically she could if Charlotte's not on the deed and Ben didn't have a will, which huh, is kind of probable. Charlotte has a friend that should be helping her out of this captive situation, but the friend is no help at all. One thing that's never fully explained that doesn't make a lot of sense is Thomas. Thomas is an overtly weird mama's boy. It never makes sense that he's decided to live at home with mom. Like the cottage, this isn't really a big issue. Weird, creepy mama's boys do exist, I suppose. They don't need a reason to be that way. The big reason why Charlotte was able to be framed as unstable was the fact that her mother suffered from mental illness. Thing is, Kindred presents Charlotte as not having any issues, but she also ends up crashing a car because she sees a bunch of birds that aren't actually there. Was she suffering from some sort of mental illness or not? Who cares? Kindred crawls along making it impossible to feel invested throughout. The acting is good. Tamara Lawrence is believable as Charlotte. She's the main character in the movie and doesn't even show up when you search the movie on Google. You have to hit an arrow in the cast section to see her. She's also the eighth character listed on IMDb. That's peculiar. Fiona Shaw plays the mom. She was Mrs. Dursley. She's nothing special in this. I'm liking her way more in Killing Eve. The other acting, Jack Loden played Thomas, and the character isn't all that believable. Loden did what he could with the role, though. Maybe he should have played Thomas a bit creepier? Kindred doesn't do anything new. If you like the concept of a movie where two weirdos gaslight a pregnant lady, I still don't recommend it. Maybe the issue stems from the situation being played too straight. Given how wacky the whole concept is, a layer of camp might have helped. Either that or a few more beats in the middle. Number 4, Warlock 1989, directed by Steve Miner. A warlock escapes and travels to the future. He kills people while looking for three parts of a book called the Grand Grimoire. A man from the past named Red Fern also comes to the future to hunt the warlock. He works with a girl named Cassandra who's been cursed by the warlock. Cassandra breaks the curse by getting her bracelet back. Cassandra defeats the warlock by injecting him with salt water. The warlock turns into flames, and Redfern returns back to his own time. The warlock is the killer. Steve Miner is a man who has directed many a horror movie. He's directed movies in the Friday the 13th and Halloween series. He also directed The American House. Boy, do I hate The American House. Watch the Japanese house zoo. Steve's back with Warlock, a movie about... A warlock who hates shoes and loves slurping up kid lard. You heard me right, kid lard. Why? Oh, I didn't realize so many of my listeners weren't practicing warlocks. If y'all were warlocks, you'd know that kid lard is a very important component in the concoction that gives warlocks the ability to fly. I'll admit I didn't know the fat of children was so important for flight before watching Warlock, this might shock you, 
but I'm not actually a warlock. The flying effect in the movie was done in two ways, a wire rig which looked okay, and some horribly aged visual effects that I don't even think would have been considered good in 1989. The warlock hates two things, footwear and eyeballs. I can't think of another movie that has a clothes-wearing villain without shoes for most of the movie. Him being shoeless also seems to get him into trouble, so it's weird that the warlock doesn't prioritize foot protection. Besides his disdain for shoes, he also hates eyeballs. He rips out a woman who he channels the devil through his eyeballs, then comically uses them to show where the parts of a book he's looking for are located. He also blinds a Mennonite. Enough about the warlock for now. Our other main characters are the very fashionable Cassandra and the man out of time Redfern. Redfern was played by Richard E. Grant, who gives his all. His performance is the strongest. You might know him as the manager in the Spice World movie. Cassandra was played by Laurie Singer. She's not bad when she's playing a character around her age, but since the warlock put an aging curse on her, she has to wear some really bad old lady prosthetics during a fourth of the movie. They look really, really bad. At one point, she's in old lady mode with pennies in her mouth. It's hilarious. Allegedly, the warlock can't use his powers on you or something if you have pennies in your mouth. There's a lot of important warlock information to take in, so I definitely forgot some specifics. Cassandra's outfits have a powerful fashion sense. Almost every single one she wore would make a fantastic Halloween costume, especially the silver jacket with the globe earrings and bracelet combo. The warlock was played by Julian Sands. He worked in the role. Does the time travel in the movie make sense? No, but time travel rarely does. The movie doesn't even attempt to explain how Redfern was able to travel through time. He's not a magic user or anything, and by the time he realized the warlock had portaled out of captivity, the portal must have been long gone. Maybe Redfern's thirst for revenge was all he needed to travel through time and confront the warlock who killed this girl he was into. There isn't a ton of gore in the movie, but the warlock does chop off a finger, pluck out some eyes, and eventually burst into flames that transform him into a goopy skeleton after he's injected with salt water. All of this was well done and entertaining. Allegedly, there was a lot more that was left on the cutting room floor because audiences didn't dig it. Warlock has enough camp and entertainment to keep your attention throughout. It's a tiny bit similar to Wishmaster, which I'd give the nod to over Warlock, but Warlock is still a fun enough ride that should be checked out. Number 5, Macabre, 1980, directed by Lamberto Bava. A woman named Jane decides to cheat on her husband with her lover Fred instead of taking her daughter Lucy and young son Michael to a movie. Lucy drowns Michael and frames it as an accident. Jane and Fred rush to the house. Fred crashes the car and dies. A year later, Jane is living in a room owned by Robert, who's blind. Robert hears Jane getting freaky, but she doesn't appear to have any guests over. Eventually, Robert realizes that Jane is getting freaky with Fred's decapitated head, which she keeps in the freezer. Lucy comes over and makes a soup with part of the head and feeds it to Jane and Robert. Lucy then tells Jane that she drowned Michael, so 
Jane drowns Lucy. Jane pushes Robert down some stairs and assumes he's dead. She starts getting freaky with Fred. Robert is still alive. He goes into Jane's room and hears breathing. He investigates. It turns out the breathing was coming from Fred's decapitated head, which pops up and sinks its teeth into Robert's neck. Jane, Lucy, a car crash, and Fred's head are the killers. Sure, Lucy drowned Michael, but Jane wasn't killing Lucy in self-defense. I'll give all you listeners a second to take that summary in. Have you processed everything? Fratricide, filicide, necrophilia. Well, that last thing might not technically be accurate, seeing as Fred's decapitated head had enough life in it to jump up and chomp Robert's jugular. With a summary that jam-packed with wacky lunacy, would you be surprised to find out two-thirds of Macabre are a slow, boring slog where characters do chores? Multiple chores are shown, including a riveting scene where Robert does the dishes. Was sitting through the dull parts worth the payoff? Definitely. Would some more death in the middle be a welcome addition? Yeah, Macabre would have benefited from one more death in the middle when things slowed down. Maybe Lucy could have killed another kid or something. There could have been a scene where her dad said he wouldn't be able to take her to a movie that ended with the camera zooming in on her enraged face as ominous music played over top. I guess she didn't have another sibling to kill though. As far as gore goes, there isn't much in Macabre. You see a bit of blood splatter after the car crashes. There's a bit when Fred's head bites Robert. Fred's head is technically gore. I guess I'm oddly desensitized to this stuff at this point, considering I was about to not even count a decapitated head as gore. The head looks great. As soon as the locked freezer is shown, it was obvious it contained some assortment of body parts. There's only two reasons to lock a freezer, body parts and frozen dessert addiction. And Jane didn't appear to be an ice cream fiend the whole time I was watching the movie, I was waiting for the head reveal. Robert finds it first, but he can't be 100% sure it's a head. Lucy ends up seeing it and doesn't even react because she's a weird little psycho like her mom. The acting, you ask? It's awful, which is a good thing. Like most Italian movies of this period, I'm not going to say all because there might be an exception, Macabre is dubbed in English. This leads to hilarious delivery across the board. I'm not sure if Veronica Zinni, the actor who played Lucy, also did the voice, but if she did, the dubbing makes it seem like it's someone completely different. All I know for sure is that Bernice Sanders, who played Jane, was dubbed by a different actor for the English language version. That makes me assume Lucy was too, but I can't confirm that. Stanko Molnar played Robert, and he doesn't even change his facial expression throughout the entire movie. It's kind of funny. Regarding Jane and Frank's decapitated Dome's relationship, it's true. It does in fact give getting head a whole new meaning. Ugh, I'm sorry. It said I had to do that joke in my imaginary contract that doesn't exist. Jane doesn't really try to hide that she's doing some weird sex thing. She makes sure to loudly masturbate so that everyone in the entire house can hear her. The only other person in the house is Robert, but still. Robert loves one thing, chicken noodle soup. It's his favorite. 
I want to believe that Lucy specifically made a decapitated head soup for the sole reason to ruin soup for Robert. It's a shame Lucy dies. Macabre isn't a typical slow burn, even though it does drag in the middle. The payoff is worth the wait. Did I say payoff? The payoffs are worth the wait. If you decide to watch the movie, here's a tip that will help you get through the boring parts. Take a drink every time you see a porcelain animal, not a shot. If you take a whole shot every time you see one, you'll die of alcohol poisoning. My favorite Lamberto Bava movie is still the original Demons, but I'll continue checking out his stuff. Number 6, Benny Loves You, 2019, directed by Carl Holt. A 35-year-old named Jack's parents die tragically on his birthday. Jack now owns his childhood home, but he can't afford to keep it. While getting ready to move, he puts his favorite childhood stuffed animal, Benny, in a box labeled rubbish. Benny comes to life and starts killing people that were giving Jack problems. Jack doesn't want Benny to kill. Jack meets a woman named Dawn. Benny keeps killing. Dawn tells a story about her childhood doll, Abby, that ended up killing her mom after she tripped over it. Jack, Dawn, and a guy named Richard try to stop Benny. Richard is killed by a robot toy he created. Abby shows up and is defeated by Dawn. Benny is shot a bunch by cops. The cops help cover up the deaths since no one will believe Benny did it. Jack and Don drive off. Birthday accidents, Benny, Abby, and other toys that came to life after being thrown away are the killers. Benny Loves You stars Carl Holt as Jack. Holt also wrote and directed the movie. One of my least favorite tropes is attractive cool girl is randomly into loser dude who has nothing going on. That trope is in Benny. There's no reason for Don to like Jack. The first third of the movie is spent showing just how big a loser Jack is. The only way Don's attraction to Jack makes sense is if she's some kind of weird psychopath. At one point in the movie, pet warning, Benny kills Jack's boss's dog. It's ridiculous. The dead dog's body, which has a lot of screen time, doesn't look real at all. So it's not all that disturbing. Don doesn't know that Benny is alive and killing things at this point, so when Benny comes up behind her with the pooch corpse, Jack grabs the corpse and begins savagely beating it before throwing it out a window and saying it was about to attack Don. Okay, so Don thinks this dude she just started seeing has just destroyed a small dog for no reason. Obviously, she's mortified. Initially. She then comes back later and bangs Jack after helping him clean up what she believes is gore left from a dog killing. Huh? Yeah, this makes absolutely no sense unless Don is a freak. Before I forget to mention it, pet warning again, Benny also kills a cat, which also turns into a silly stuffed animal. Jack isn't a likable character, he's a sad sack, he doesn't take responsibility for his failures. Even so, since he's the main character and has so much screen time, you start to think he's okay. But then Jack gets really creepy with his boss, whom Benny captured and tied up. Jack, we get that your boss was an ass to you, but that doesn't excuse you from being a weird deviant with him when he's tied up. There's a lady that comes over to look at the house since it's for sale. She also came home with Jack one time in the past and freaked out when she realized he was a man-child living with his parents, which was pretty funny. Benny attacks the lady, so she goes up in the attic to get away from him. 
The movie ends without resolving the whole lady in the attic thing. I guess they just forgot she was up there. Benny Loves You is a bit chaotic. The movie's fast and loose with cuts. It has the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks approach. Most of the humor landed for me. At first I assumed the director, writer, star was a VFX artist that wanted to make his own movie since Benny is full of well done CGI, but Carl Holt doesn't have any VFX work listed on IMDb. Even though there is liberal use of CGI, I'd say 90% of it looks amazing for an indie film. Practical effects are also used for a lot of the gore, which looks good and fun. There are a few original songs in Benny. One of the songs by KRTL, I'm assuming Control, is called Things Are Not The Same When I Am Around You, and it's catchy and great. The acting works for what Benny is. Most of the performances are funny and solid. Everyone is hamming it up. Benny speaking only in lines the stuffed animal had programmed before he became a killer is great. Hearing a cute little stuffed animal say, Ta-da! As he reveals some human intestines never gets old. Benny Loves You doesn't perfectly stick the landing. It stumbles quite a bit, but ends up in an endearing I did it pose. I give it a soft recommendation. It does begin to drag quite a bit towards the end. A killer stuffed animal versus a toy robot fight shouldn't be as boring as it is. Number 7. Saw 1 and 2, A Retrospective. So, Saw Fever is going around again because Spiral just came out. I haven't seen all the Saws. I've seen... I don't even know which ones I've seen. I saw the OG, the second story. Get it, it's in a house. Maybe the third one, and a couple others, I think. The one that was in 3D? None of this rambling matters. For this retrospective, I'm only going to be talking about Saw 1 and Saw 2. Before revisiting these installments, I had fond memories of them. I've always been of the mindset that Saw 1 is legitimately good and 2 isn't bad either. But after watching them again, Hachimachi are these movies bad? Don't bother lighting the torch. I said they're bad. I didn't say they aren't enjoyable or entertaining. Let's start with Saw. The acting in the original Saw is awful. I didn't realize until halfway through my rewatch that Larry Gordon is played by none other than Wesley. Like everyone ever, I liked Carrie Elwes as Wesley in The Princess Bride. He's great and campy. In Saw, yikes, he is terrible. His performance as Larry Gordon definitely makes the movie funnier. His delivery is awkward. His American accent is bordering on transatlantic. It's goofy. His entire performance is goofy. Lee Winnell is much better in comparison, but he's still not incredible. I don't personally understand the love for Torben Bell as Jigsaw. He's not bad, but he doesn't blow me away either. Acting aside, the biggest problem with Saw is the editing. The editing in Saw and Saw 2 is heinous. There are sequences where cuts happen a mile a minute for no reason. Most scenes in the movies would benefit from long shots that allow the audience to soak in the atmosphere. Instead of allowing that, the series decided to make a large percentage of the cuts as jarring as possible. I felt nauseous during a lot of the trap sequences, not due to the content, but due to the way they were presented. Instead of methodical, well-planned shots, 
The tramp sequences are mostly a person screaming while different shots of the person and other random things are flashed like a strobe light. James Wan directed the first movie. If this was his artistic vision, yeesh. I haven't seen a Conjuring movie in years, but I don't recall that series being anywhere near as erratic with the editing. Lee Winnell should have directed Saw. The screenplay is solid, the story is interesting, the twists are fun, the direction is painful. There are parts of the movie where it's truly baffling no one said, hey let's do uh, another take, this one is a uh, whack. I remember really liking Saw 2 since it was basically the first escape room movie I'd ever seen. It also has one of the most horrifying sequences with the hypodermic needle pit. Most saw traps are over the top in their design, which makes them less scary and more fun to watch. A simple pit of pointy syringes? Now that's spooky. I didn't remember that the live stream kid in Scream 4 was in Saw 2. The acting is a bit better in the sequel, I know that's shocking, but I can't overstate just how bad Carrie Elwes is in the original. The whole Saw universe is weird, it's like this grungy hell world. That's not a ding, just an observation. Jigsaw gets pretty fast and loose with his rules. In the second movie, Jigsaw is fully aware that the people he kidnapped were arrested because Detective Matthews planted evidence on them. Why are you punishing these people that were framed, Jiggy? The hell, man? His motives weren't amazing in the first place, I guess. They always seem to be, eh, you're kinda bad, so learn to love life or die. Darren Lynn Bowsman took over for a bunch of the movies in the series after the original. You didn't have to continue the trend of abysmal editing, Darren. Maybe he got better with time. I can't remember the other movies. I might watch them. I might not. I was falling asleep during 2, which is one of the installments I thought I liked. The Saw movies might have some entertaining moments. I can understand enjoying them, but they are not good movies. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 97, Spooky Curses, Dead Love, and Cuddly Killers. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. I know iTunes is garbo. I'll be back with episode 98 on May 30th. Hopefully I think of something cool to do for episode 100, because it's coming up in my mind's blank. Anyway, until next time, remember that it's not worth lifting a tiny curse. That curse where every time you use a fork to eat, you bite it at least once isn't all that bad compared to the worst curse that's waiting around the corner for curse numero uno to be lifted.